if you would find 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, the scripture I want to read, I'll just give you kind of a summary of the chapter. Paul's talking about both temporal things and eternal things. Talks about in the beginning, um, laying aside our earthly tent, he calls it, our body, and being absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Um, Then he speaks somewhat of his job. Um, Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, or the terror of the Lord, some versions say. In other words, what a terrifying thought to stand before the God of all the universe and watch Him open the books to our name. That's what he's saying. Therefore, we plead with people to be right with God so we can face that day with confidence. Then he sums up really in verse 18. Now all these things, the Word of God, the knowledge He's given us, so forth, all of these things, he says, are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, and here is one of several cases where Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sums up the whole Bible, sums up everything in just a few sentences. Namely, the ministry of reconciliation is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, that is, the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin or a sin offering on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is another of many, I guess I would say, too rich to get at adequately, passages on the atonement, on what what God's provided for us. So I want you to see here today that really this short, statement of the atonement, what God did. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and then he says, therefore we beg you be reconciled. There are two reconciliations here. One is God reconciling, in a sense, himself 
to us so that he could reach out to us in love and mercy and still sustain and maintain his justice. And then, having made that reconciliation, he then calls on us to be reconciled to him. So there are two reconciliations here. God's was first. He took the initiative. Now he calls on us, you be reconciled to me, now that I've reconciled myself to you. Now, what does reconciliation imply? Enmity. You don't need reconciliation unless there's a state of enmity that at least one of the two parties that is in enmity wishes to do away with. There's an interesting thing here. The word that keeps being used in this short passage, reconciliation, is different than a word that, for instance, Jesus used in the book of Matthew. He talks about if you're coming to church, if you're coming, he said, to offer a sacrifice at the temple, and while you're about to approach the altar, it, you remember that someone has something against you or vice versa. He said, leave your offering. Go be reconciled with your friend. Then come back. And now you're qualified to appear in my behalf or here, appear in my presence to offer an offering to me. That word, be reconciled, is a different word entirely. It, it means reconciliation on both persons' part. Two people coming together. It assumes that two people have varying degrees of need to change. But not here. This word for reconcile means one who needs to change. Now, between us and God, you can probably figure out who it is that needs to change. This is how specific God is in explaining to us the plan, and that's really the main point here. There's a plan and there's a plea. The plan is, as Paul summed it up, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What does that mean? Does God count our trespasses against us? I think he does. I think the Bible's pretty clear that he does. He'll open the books and he says he'll judge us out of everything that's written in there, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So does God remember our trespasses? Does he tell us about them? Does he done us with them? Yeah. That's what conviction's all about. So what does this mean? I reconciled you, the world, to me, not counting your trespasses. 
It doesn't mean that he never mentions them. It does not mean that he just shrugs at them and lets them go. <clears throat> but here's what it means. If God's righteous, holy justice were to function by itself, He would have extinguished us as a race the moment we rebelled against Him with enmity in our hearts. And we had enmity towards Him. If He were going to be simply just, He would have extinguished us like that. But remember, several places in the New Testament tell us Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. In the heart and mind of God, He had determined that the Father would offer up His Son to be a satisfaction for the penalty that God's justice called out for. God couldn't ever suspend or just shrug off his justice. The moment Adam and Eve in enmity, enmity took root in their heart, there was a reciprocal enmity in God's heart. Adam and Eve and every human since fundamental issue we have in our heart is enmity towards God. Romans says that this sinful nature, the, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. And it describes how that enmity against God works itself out in our lives. Enmity against God is not subject to the law of God won't obey God. Don't you tell me what to do. That's the enmity in our hearts toward God. We resent God's claims upon us to order our lives. We, Richard Taylor puts it very well in one of his books. God is the greatest threat in the universe to our self-sovereignty. I'm in charge here, I say to myself, and I say it to God. And then when God comes at me with claims that, no, I made you. You owe me. I give the orders around here. Then what does that set up? It sets up an eternal clash between me and God. Now, it's a dumb one. It's a really dumb one. Just this morning, thinking about this, every one of us have little memories, maybe from when we were really small, but they're just vivid. Couldn't have been six or seven, maybe. And we went to the Portland Zoo. <clears throat> Beautiful day, which is part of the news, uh, that it wasn't raining. Beautiful sunny day, and we're up on the West Hills in Portland, and we're at the zoo. 
and we're at the lion's cage. And this was, you know, back when I was a little kid before meat was cooked and things like that. And it was the, you know, the big bars and a large concrete interior. And there were, this was the lion's display. There was um, a lion, a couple of lionesses, unless they were identifying as lions. Of course, the lion could have identified as a lioness. But anyway, and there were cubs in there. And <clears throat> I still remember just standing there looking at this, looking at that lion crowd. Somebody said, I don't know who it was, but I just remember hearing, it looks like that he doesn't have any teeth because he was kind of, I don't know why they said, said that. Then he yawned. I mean, fangs were, and whoever said that, somebody said, no, he's got teeth. Then the zookeepers came. They started throwing from a door these huge chunks of meat. And this lion had you know, this huge mane, and he was right by the bars, and he had this big chunk of meat, and he had that in his paws. And from clear over on the other side of the enclosure, this little cub, still remembering, kind of wobbling, and he came over to that big chunk of meat that that lion had. Now, I don't know why they even left cubs in with lions. Sometimes they'll kill them. But at any rate, this little cub kind of toddled over there and just started to take a bite. Now, the lion didn't appreciate that. I still remember my, there was a, a rumble that I felt my chest. Do you know what I mean? He just <sighs> took his paw, but he didn't sh extend his claws, took his paw and just <laughs> That little cub just slid and rolled and flipped completely to the other side of the enclosure and banged up against the bars. And standing against the bar, far away as he could possibly get from that lion, he raised up his paw and went, <laughs> we're like that cub. It's pathetic, pathetic that we rebel against our father. And who is he? He has teeth. If he had exercised then just pure justice, we would have been gone. But God who requires a penalty for sin paid it himself. The one who required the most costly thing, your life, for sin, paid it himself. That's why John could say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now what did giving his son 
first in his heart and mind before the foundation of the world, but then in the point in history where that which was planned had to take place. What did that do to reconcile? How does that reconcile the world? It allowed God, since the penalty on our behalf had been paid, it allowed the Father to show the other side, and not that he's schizophrenic, but to show mercy. Mercy, the Bible says, mercy rejoices against judgment. The only way that God could show mercy without it being dispensing with justice was to satisfy justice himself. Then he could look at us and postpone our sentence, giving him and us all of our lives to respond to his plea to us. I have made way, I've reconciled my own nature, which is holy justice. I've paid the penalty on your behalf so that I could then justly be merciful to you and not make you pay the penalty. Yet, I'll give you your life, time, and I will draw you and call you and plead with you and send ambassadors to you so that you will now respond to my reconciling myself to you by laying aside your enemy, enmity and being reconciled to me. If I do not do that, then I will ultimately, at the end of my life, I will pay the penalty for my sins myself. Because I never put my faith in the one who substituted for me. Also, I never abandoned my sins, which are the source of the enmity between us. God the Father, we can say, mitigated by himself paying the penalty for sin. He opened the way for him to not have enmity towards me. But if I never abandon my enmity towards him, I then at death pay the penalty myself. And that penalty is hell forever. To me, this passage is beyond my ability to get a hold of it. And what, what a capsule statement of what God did. The Father gave His Son to pay the penalty in our behalf. And He clothed Himself then in the fullness of time with our human bodies, came and showed us the way of righteousness, and died in front of us on a cross so that we would all see it. And then says, I've made a way for us to be reconciled 
for you to abandon your enmity and be reconciled to me. What does the word reconcile mean? A couple things. Number one, it means, first of all, especially in this passage, it means to be changed thoroughly. Isn't that what God plans to do? To change us thoroughly. Interior change. Not just kind of a legal change, but a real change. So that my heart, what is real reconciliation ever based on? Likeness, sameness, agreement. Which is the second meaning of reconciliation, which is to obtain agreement. To obtain and restore friendship, which is based on likeness and commonness. We now, when God has reconciled me to Him, when I lay aside my enmity, suddenly my spiritual appetite, I'm alive, I, can, I have sight where I was blind. I am a living where I was dead. But my appetite changes. I didn't have any trouble after, after I was reconciled to God reading my Bible and praying. I wanted to. And I've mentioned this to you before. My dad became a wonderful preacher in 24 hours. Now, I always thought he was a good preacher anyway. I got saved on a Friday. By that next Sunday when I went to church, he turned into a decent preacher. I enjoyed going to church. I loved to listen and learn things because I was now like the God who reconciled me to Him. Here's another tremendous indication in this passage of Scripture, of the unbelievable mercy and love of God to you and I. He took the initiative. He's the one that knew we're helpless. And without Him, hopeless. We could not remedy ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves righteous. We couldn't do a thing about the sentence we were under of death for rebellion against the king of the universe. So what does he do? He takes the initiative. He says, I will strike out after them. I will seek them. First, I'll take the initiative. I will provide a way for them to get back into my graces rather than just destroy them because I love them. And the what? Look at the cost to the Father and to the Son that He freely, gladly paid to provide a way back to Him. Then, it buried here in this passage, you and I coming back to Him, He not only calls and convicts and draws us to come back to Him, but He's the one that gives me the enablement to do it. And it here in this Scripture, 
God was in Christ 19, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, meaning he didn't just let justice have its way right off the bat. 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, now be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Now, the literal reading here is, let God reconcile you to himself. The word here for be reconciled is, yes, you have to have a will involved here, and you have to cooperate, but, I, but God's the one that enables me to cooperate. And so it's, it's called a passive imperative. It's an order, but it's you let God reconcile you to Him. Even here, after all God's already done, He goes the 15th extra mile and says in here, let me give you the strength and the willpower to take that step toward me. I'll give you that too. That's the atonement. That's what two Sundays from today, when we celebrate Easter, that's what we're commemorating. That's what we have in a God. He's not hard to get along with. He's not hard to please. Let me say this, and I don't say it, I, I, I say this soberly, and I don't say it with any kind of um, harshness. I want us to see here Let me use Hebrews chapter 2. How shall... Well, let me back up. Under Moses, the writer of the Hebrew says, in the Old Testament, when angels, prophets, and so forth, spoke to them, if you violated that law, he said you died without mercy under two or three witnesses, meaning... Two or three witnesses, you swore and took the name of the Lord your God in vain. They stoned you. Then the writer of the Hebrew says, If under that dispensation you died without mercy for breaking one of God's laws, what he says what will it be of how much more fear, he said, should it be if we disregard the word of his son? And then he concludes with this statement. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word neglect there doesn't even mean hate. Wage war against it. That's worse. It just means kind of a level of indifference. Nah, I don't care. Yeah, I know God. I know all the church stuff. How shall we escape? 
if we neglect so great a salvation. So what, what I want to say, but say it correctly, we deserve to go to hell. We deserve to go to hell if we reject this or neglect it. After all God's done and is still doing for us, do you see why hell is so justified? People say, how can a good God send you to hell? Well, A, he doesn't send anybody to hell. You stubbornly do it in the face of everything he can do to keep you from going there. But anybody that hardens their heart against that, holds out, maintains the enmity in here, I don't want to do what God tells I'm not going to give him control of my life. Again, I say softly, you deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell to dig my heels against, in against that God with all he's done. Be reconciled to God is the message that he gives to us. Not only as ministers, but as Christians. Our appeal is, and notice it's big. Let me, let me put John, or quote John Wesley here. On this passage, this statement, we plead with you, we beg you to be reconciled to God. Now think of this. Wesley just said this. What judge, what earthly judge would ever have to beg a criminal to accept a pardon? What, he said, what creditor would ever have to plead with a ruined, bankrupt debtor, please accept exoneration of your debt. Yet, it shows the depths of the enmity of the human heart toward God's encroachment on my territory. That God, after dying for us, and providing a way for us to escape awful judgment and eternal hell has to beg us to take it and appoint people who do nothing in their whole life but plead with people on behalf of Jesus to do it. That's what Paul said I am. He said I'm a minister. That, that's what fleshly ministers that God calls out of secular employment. You do this. You represent me in begging people be reconciled to God. What a state we're in. But what, what a plan, what a way God gave us. There's no excuse. No excuse for any of us to ever stand to judgment with all God's done for us. Unprepared, still rebellious, still clinging to some phantom 
authority we think we've got or sovereignty. We're as pathetic as that lion cub. The God begs us be reconciled. Let me just pray and then we will I think most of us got a sheet. I want us to look at that hymn. Charles Wesley I think it's one of the greatest hymns ever written and there, it'll never be surpassed. It describes the very act, the process and the act of us being reconciled to God. What's involved in it on my side? God's already reconciled Himself to us by knocking down the barrier that justice puts up. Now He says, you get rid of your enmity and come to me. This was written 1738. Charles Wesley, just two or three days after he got converted. He'd been a priest like his brother John in the Church of England, preached, wrote hymns, ministered the sacraments, married, buried the dead, didn't know God. Didn't know God on a personal basis. And when he found God, he wrote this. He also wrote, which we'll sing next Sunday, and, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's the atonement. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The enemy does his best after all God's done for us to still deceive us that God is so angry with us he'll never forgive us. A God who didn't spare his own son is reluctant to forgive us? That's ridiculous. It's a lie. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Surety here means my guarantor. Jesus holds forth his wounded hands and says, you come to me, I'll forgive you. I paid a price so I could. My name's written on his hands. That's a quote from the Old Testament. God told Israel, he said, how even though they were wicked and he was going to judge them, he said, how could I ever forget you? Your names are carved on my hands. That's how much I love you. I can't forget you. He ever lives above for me to intercede. Jesus prays for us, according to the Scripture, he prays to the Father for us by name. Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, the devil's after you, and he's going to put you through the sieve. He's going to tempt you, try you, 
and you're going to go through rough waters, which the very next morning he did. He denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus knew that was coming. But he said what? Interesting here, too. Quickly, it's in Luke. He said, Satan has desired you. Not singular, plural. All you disciples gathered here in front of him. Satan has desired all of you that he might try you. But Peter, I've prayed for you, and that's singular. Meaning, I named you. I prayed for you by name. Now, God's got seven billion people in this world to worry about, to love, to draw to himself. Jesus prays for us by name. He ever lives. That's from Hebrews. For me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atone for all our race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. <clears throat> they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. There's all three of the persons of the Trinity <clears throat> involved in my individual salvation. Finally, here's that word again. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh and father Abba, Father, cry. Abba's Aramaic for Daddy. It's like a child running to its father. That's what, that's what us being reconciled to God involves in the pathway to being changed. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll stand close with this <clears throat> father in heaven i pray that we would recognize how much you have done for us so unworthy you made it clear that you loved us before we were lovable while we were yet rebels you loved us and gave yourself for us so i pray lord that you would let this sink down deep in our hearts. And as we sing today, Lord, if there's anyone here that knows they need to be reconciled to you, and they haven't, this is a time, a place to pray that and leave this place different. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, if you would, please. <clears throat> <clears throat> Arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my
Let's pray. Father, there are times when I come up here to pray that I don't know what to even say after hearing such things as we've heard this morning. So I want to just lay this scripture before myself in this congregation today, Lord. As Paul said in the book of Romans in chapter 12, Therefore, because of God's great mercies, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices. May we do that today as a congregation, Lord, because of your great mercies and what we learned this morning to be reconciled to you. May we do just that, offer ourselves completely to you, not just in this sanctuary, but as we leave this place as well, that we will go and live by your glory, to your glory, by your grace, Lord. May we do that today. Brand these things upon our heart we learned this morning, Lord, especially going into this Easter season, that we can go and share the good news of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great day, everyone.